This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with writer Keridwin Dovey. She joins me to explore her award-winning essay, Everlasting Freefall. Keridwin writes and explains how in the past two years, over 1,000 new commercial satellites have been shot into low Earth orbit, and that's just the beginning. It's starting to change the makeup of the night sky and much more. Keridwin joined me to discuss in detail these concerning developments and what they mean for us. And I'm now joined by writer Keridwen Dovey. She is an award winner for many different pieces, in fact, including last year and this year, winning uh, the Bragg Prize for her essays. And this year's essay is called Everlasting Freefall. It is currently now being featured in the Best Australian Science Writing 2021 book, which is out through New South Press. It was originally published on the Alexander platform, which features actors that you would know reading out pieces, um, including Caridwins and uh, Vanessa Kirby, who played uh, Princess Margaret on the Crown, read out this essay, which is obviously a really nice experience if you get the chance to have that as well. But I also did read it in hard copy in this excellent compilation of Australian science writing, and there are many different wonderful pieces, including this one by Keridwen. So I welcome Keridwen now, who's going to tell us all about these mega constellations of commercial satellites that surround the Earth and that have only greater and bigger plans to be launched into space in more numerous situations. So I welcome Keridwen now. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And um, thank you so much for coming onto the program to talk about something which is actually really urgent and quite shocking the adjective that I came away with after reading your piece, apart from being moved, was that I was also disturbed. And it was something that I kind of felt ashamed about because I didn't know what was happening to the sky, the night sky, to this extent. I'd heard about things we're doing here on planet Earth about having lights on in parks overnight and upsetting trees and birds, but I did not know about the extent of these commercial satellites being shot into low Earth orbit and the plans that are being made and have been made to increase their number. So I wondered, first of all, given your writing in the nonfiction arena has been so diverse, what has taken you to this area of space and space ethics and environments? Yeah, I mean... um you're not alone in not knowing about any of this stuff. And honestly, a few years ago, I didn't know anything about it either. And there was a sort of moment, I think in around 2013, 2014, where I first read an article about Richard Branson founding Virgin Galactica and this idea that space tourism was going to be a thing. And I just remember feeling that same kind of shock and shame that you are describing. Um, you know, we're so focused on saving Earth's environments right now, as we should be. And that had been most of my nonfiction writing was, was mainly about that. And there was something about learning that we were going to begin to do the same things to this global commons of space that we had done to all the global commons on Earth, including the ocean, 
that just I just remember feeling something kind of snap within me. And from that moment, I just began to focus on what was happening and just track it very closely. And then in 2017, was so lucky to profile the space archaeologist Alice Gorman, who also has a piece in the, this year's best Australian science writing collection and is the past winner of the Bragg Prize. And I, I profiled her for um, a piece in The New Yorker, and I really credit her for changing everything in how I think about space. She was the first person to describe it as a cultural landscape uh, and to sort of join the dots on the things that are happening in space and to use the objects that we have put into space and the space junk that's already in orbit around Earth as clues to how we think about ourselves and not just the domain of the hard sciences, but a place where people like me, I'm a social scientist by training, I'm an anthropologist by training, but also a fiction writer, that people like us should also be thinking about and questioning what's happening in space. And so since I met Alice, she welcomed me into this space community, um, which is really vibrant in Australia, and many of the most interesting thinkers who are pushing back against this commercial push um, in space are actually Australian, maybe because we are so far away from everything else, it gives us a little bit of space to actually do some of the critical thinking around this and question what's happening. And um, I just began to pay more attention to what was happening. And then the next sort of, you know, horrible moment of realising what we were doing was when SpaceX launched its first batch of 60 Starlink satellites. This was in uh, May 2019. And immediately astronomers around the world began to post things on social media about how bright and how reflective these satellites were and how ground-based radio and optical astronomy was being really negatively affected. And that was only with the first batch. And then SpaceX kept launching 60 Starlinks in batches about every two weeks through the rest of that year. And they've continued to do it up, up to now. And they're not alone. There's all the big tech companies. It's sort of like an orbital land grab. So Amazon, OneWeb, and then also some of the um, national space agencies, so China and Russia, have plans to put their own mega constellations into very low Earth orbits as well. So we are beginning to see a real shift towards a kind of unregulated industrialization of space. And I think it's it's a point where, you know, we need to, as the public and as citizens, and actually make a shift in how we think about space. I think up to now we've been trained to look up and just think with awe and wonder. And whatever happens up there is just wonderful and exciting. And it's all about supporting science. And that may have been the case up to now, but we're in a shift now towards a profit-driven incentive for what happens in space. And I think we actually need to set our awe and our wonder aside and put in our, you know, critical thinking caps. Absolutely. And after reading this piece, and maybe it was kind of fate in a way or coincidence, I'm not sure, but I did see in my local group that someone had been out satellite gazing, which apparently is a, a pastime now, and uh, had taken photographs on her iPhone 
which showed these kind of horizontal streaks across the sky, which were very distinct from any of the stars in the sky. And they were actually a lot brighter than the stars in the photo, at least. And then I found out after looking at the comments that there were even websites about how to see a satellite and when the next Starlink satellite will be near you and when it will be most brightest at what hour in the night, just like we would, you know, want to go see a supermoon. Now we can go see a Starlink satellite. So I was, um, I guess, a little bit taken aback when I saw that, thinking, gosh, what have things come to now that I've actually read your piece? So I guess I hope that we get to the point where looking at a satellite in the sky isn't something we only see. So we will get to that point in the essay in a moment, but let's just um, backtrack a bit. You talk about the fact that they're in this area of low orbital space. So I wonder if you could share with us the difference and why they're in this section of space and what also happens in this section of space in terms of the observations of astronomers and the practical implications it has of, of having these satellites in low orbital space. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that what you said about the, the Facebook groups and the, the clubs around satellite gazing, it, you know, there's only about, you know, just over a thousand new commercial satellites that have been put up in the past two years. So right now it's really just, you know, the tip of the iceberg and the predictions are that within a decade, we're going to have close to 60,000 of these things up there. So we've probably been very naive in, again, you know, seeing these things and thinking that it's, that it's a novelty and it will be radically different when our entire planet is surrounded by machines. And that actually doesn't even take into account the CubeSat revolution. So the ones that I'm talking about in this article are, are much bigger. So like an individual Starlink is about 260 kilograms three metre long sort of bus part and then a, a solar array that can be up to nine metres. So they're pretty, they're pretty big and they go up in these mega constellations. But there's a whole lot of companies that are also planning to put CubeSats and NanoSats into low Earth orbit to do things like the Internet of, of Things. So we're not even talking about or including those in that number of the 60,000 that you know could be up there within a decade. And the thing about these satellites, and where they are around the planet, they're actually so low that there's a new designation of very low Earth orbit. So, you know, in original terms, you had low Earth orbit and you had medium Earth orbit and you had geostationary Earth orbit. And these were just ways of designating how high above the planet a particular satellite was going to be placed. And what's changed now is that very low Earth orbit, that covers up to about 450 kilometres above Earth. We've never put things that low and certainly we've never put things in a kind of, you know, mass-produced batches, uh, mechanised batches like the way we are now. And so I think, again, going back to that point I was making about the transition period that we're in, we still think of satellites as these solitary, magical objects because that's basically what they have been up till now, you know, and you, it goes all the way back to Sputnik being put up in 1957 and the very first communications satellite, essentially, and the way that it absolutely bowled everybody over. You know, this was like magic in the sky and people used to, you know, track the sightings of Sputnik and um, it was like a kind of, you, you know, religious experience to see it in the sky. 
then we put a bunch of other satellites up, but they were usually much higher, you know, in geostationary orbit um, and certainly not visible in the night sky. And now we are suddenly saying, no, 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 we're going to put, you know, tens of thousands of these things up. They're no longer going to be solitary. They're no longer going to be magical. They are mass-produced objects that will go up in batches very regularly. They'll only survive up there for about five to seven years. They are then designed to basically become obsolescent and fall back down into our atmosphere and burn up. Um, which creates possibly all sorts of other unforeseen consequences in terms of what that does to the atmosphere. And again, in the past, there were so few things burning up that we didn't really need to think about it in that way. But if you've got these, you know, tens of thousands of these objects burning up and creating re-entry smoke particles, they don't just, you know, disappear in the atmosphere. They're there. They're just in a different form. And just like we've learned the error of our ways in terms of what we've done to the Earth and its climate, I think all of these conversations need to be taking place um, around the polluting effects of these things and, and to begin to see orbital space around our planet and beyond, you know, the surface of the moon, Mars, asteroids. I think the really big shift is to begin to see Earth as part of a wider space environment, just like we had to begin to see Earth itself and all of its you know, climate and different parts of itself as one whole where everything was going to have the same impact. I think that's really what, you know, the tiny thing that I'm trying to do is just to try and get people to sort of look out and place Earth again within a, a bunch of systems that we don't really fully understand. And if we keep talking about space as being big, which is something that, you know, a lot of the big tech bros like to do, all the billionaires who are sending themselves up there in such tone-deaf ways, given what the rest of the world is going through, they love to quote Space is Big, which is from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I think, you know, I keep tracking back to the analogy of how we used to think about the oceans, you know, 70 years ago. We also used to think of them as being unpollutable, you know, that mm. we were so puny that we would never, you know, have an impact on such a vast global commons. And now we know exactly how wrong we were. And I think we have an opportunity now with space before we have completely destroyed it. Um, you know, there's only a thousand few more of these things out there right now. So we actually have a moment where we could stop what's happening, but it would take a kind of global will and a different way of, of seeing space as being part of nature and as deserving to be conserved and protected. I couldn't agree more. And I know that you interviewed a lot of people for this essay, including some Australians and Americans, but I'm thinking particularly of Marnie Ogg and also um, her partner. And you were writing towards the beginning of the piece about these particularly impressive and large telescopes, which had, in fact, digital cameras that are among the largest in the world, and that they do have a very particular function now being almost entirely dedicated to searching for near-Earth objects, including, as you write, killer asteroids on a potential collision course with our planet. So it's doing some very critical work. And I was surprised to learn, but now not so surprised, to learn that these satellites really do interfere with that work. And I wondered if you could share with us what the effects are. Yeah, I mean, that's a great 
question because I think that's the other, you know, prompt in terms of why I feel so driven to write these pieces. And I'm a freelancer, so, you know, I kind of come up with the idea myself and I have to pitch it and then do all the research and they, they take me forever, but they become a kind of obsession. And I think the thing that really drives me nuts is the irrationality and the illogic at the heart mm. of so many of these newspaper companies. They speak of themselves as being pro-science, and I think we all assume that they've got the biggest, smartest geeks in town, you know, working for them, thinking through all the, the science, and we kind of give them a lot of credit for that. But actually what bothers me is that they are not, I would go so far as to say they, they're anti-science, um, and they are certainly not considering their complex impacts, not only on the environment, but on the very science of, you know, deep time and the universe, which is astronomy. And so this was a, a moment in the essay that I really wanted to explore because I was amazed when Marnie Ogg, who's the founder of the Australasian Dark Sky Association and has done amazing work on actually creating dark sky parks and preserves, both in Australia and around the world. And her partner, Fred Watson, who who was an astronomer for many, many years in the Warren Bungles, which is now actually a dark sky park, thanks to their work. And they were telling me a story about how they eloped when they were in Hawaii about 10 years ago. And they got married in a place uh, at the top of a, a mount in Hawaii where the Pan Stars One telescope is. And they explained to me that, you know, this is the telescope. It does these wide field surveys. And so it can actually pick up changes in movement. And it is called an asteroid hunter because it is one of the few that can actually pick up near-Earth asteroids. So the things that could potentially get close enough to Earth to have an impact. And, you know, immediately I, I was thinking about some of the founders of the space companies who I won't name in person, but the ones who are always going on about us needing a plan B and and sort of saying, oh, you know, we need to be an interplanetary civilization and, you know, follow me and I will make it happen. Because to me, there's a really deep irony in that, that the very same people and companies who are actually blocking our view of the universe and negatively affecting the science of astronomy, not only in terms of, you know, what we can learn about the rest of the universe, but also just in terms of seeing near-Earth asteroids. They're the very same people putting up these satellite constellations that may eventually completely block that view entirely. And so it's those, it's those not in, in the kind of messiness of this whole new space world that I keep finding myself drawn to unpicking because it's, it's crazy to me that, you know, when SpaceX first started putting up the Starlink satellite and astronomers began to complain, it very quickly became clear that nobody at SpaceX had thought there might be any kind of impact on astronomy by putting a whole lot of very bright, shiny, reflective things into very low Earth orbits. Um, and they actually admitted that, and, you know, I covered that in the essay, that they said, we, we didn't think of it. No one, you know, thought that that was going to be a problem. And they certainly did not consult with any astronomers before they started launching these batches of constellations. So that's 
pretty shocking, you know, that a tech company supposedly run by geniuses had not even thought about the most basic impact on a science that they claim to support. And so it's then been this long battle between the tech companies and a group of astronomers who very quickly realised about what the impacts might be, but have struggled to kind of mobilise their own science in terms of becoming not just astronomers, but activists who are having to fight for the rights of their own science to exist. And so in the essay, what I really, you know, wanted to do was to listen in to their stories and they very generously shared their expertise and their stories and their own journeys with me. Um, And it was astronomers and astrophysicists and astrodynamicists from around the world who were all looking at this issue from slightly different angles, but were also determined to come together and say, you know, not on our watch. We do not want to be responsible in 70 years for people looking back and saying, what happened? When did we lose the ability to see starlight? When did we lose our human right to have dark and radio quiet skies? Like who let that happen? And so it was really interesting to me to sort of peek into their working lives as astronomers. And I'm not, you know, a hard scientist. So the the technical stuff is very difficult for me to understand, but they took me through it very patiently. And it was really very empowering uh, to, to, feel like I could listen into the to the work that they're doing. And even though I can't do that work, what I can do is sort of share their stories and make sure that people, you know, know that there is this battle going on and there's a fight happening and that astronomers are, you know, really mobilizing to to try and, and stop what's happening. You do share these stories very powerfully and effectively in my view when I was reading through it. Their stories and also their passion and interests really are quite strong in the way that you convey them. And one of the people that stuck out to me was Jonathan McDowell of the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics. And you say that he has a really interesting area of research on, I'm not going to say this right, but kasars, which are accreting supermassive black holes in the middle of galaxies, what we used to call the monster in the middle. So, you know, pretty far out, exciting things. But you also talked about his really interesting hobby that since 1989, he's been distributing a free newsletter called Jonathan's Space Report, documenting every detail of every space launch. And I wondered, you know, when you were coming across these people and are obviously weaving their stories together to create this argument, like you're constructing a really clear argument and story across the whole essay, what was it from some of these people that struck you and that, you know, most stuck out in your mind as things that we can learn from and people we should be amplifying? Yeah, I think it's that I I agree with you, Jonathan McDowell's just, he's just a wonderful character because he looks from the outside like a space geek. And it seems like, you know, if you just knew about the work that he did and, you know, his public profile, you would assume that he's totally on board with anything to do with space and, you know, fully supportive of what's happening. And, and I just loved that he completely upends all those expectations and that he's actually had to go around and educate his own colleagues about what's happening. And I think I say in the essay, you know, he sees his role right now as uncovering all the satellite skeletons that are buried, you know, around Mm. the place because 
no one really knows. No one is is tracking this stuff, you know, takes a kind of global ability to track it. But we've also got the issue of industrial secrecy. So most of these tech companies, you know, they don't share information about, for example, which individual satellites have failed, which has dire consequences because it means you can't predict which ones might have a conjunction, which is, you know, when two things come very close to having a collision. And it means that, you know, people are really quite literally flying blind in terms of knowing what's happening up there. And I also really found his take on things interesting because he's really interested in radio astronomy. So it's not just optical astronomy, the things that we can see, the light that we can see, but the radio frequencies that these um, satellites are transmitting at, you know, that's that's another kind of um, crowding that's hard for us to conceptualise because, you know, we focus on the senses that we privilege as humans, as sight. And so it's also about a kind of crowding of the frequencies that these satellites are transmitting at and the slicing up of those frequencies as satellite operators each try and get a piece of the commercial pie. Yeah, he's he's just a great guy. And the fact that he's been doing this for so long, you know, like since, since the 80s, he has such a wealth of experience and information about how to track these things, where the information is. And, you know, for him, it is an obsession. I mean, he, he admits that this is what he does in his for fun, you know, like this isn't part of his day job. This is what he does at night and this is how he spends his time. And thank goodness that there are people and scientists like him who are doing that kind of accountability work. Um, in terms of, you know, trying to keep eyes on the sky and trying to hold these companies accountable, even though they, you know, in true Silicon Valley way, just want to move fast and break things and hide all evidence of what they're actually doing up there. Well, just finally, Keridan, probably addressing the elephant in the room and many people would think, well, who's regulating space and why are these people and companies allowed to do this seemingly unbridled, really, um, and doing what they want? And so I, I wonder, you do address this in the piece, but I wonder if you could just share with us how lacking the regulatory framework is at the moment and you know whether that's one way that we can forcefully change things. Yeah, it's it's a really tricky one to answer. The most important thing I think that anyone who's listening could take away is that space is not a wild west. And this is something that I've learned from um, one of my mentors, Stephen Freeland, who is actually Australia's representative to the UN committee that deals with the peaceful uses of outer space. And he's a space lawyer and has been for many decades. And, you know, people kind of assume because it seems chaotic out there right now with companies doing whatever they want, that there's nothing governing what should be happening in space. But that's actually not true. There's a very robust system of treaties, uh, United Nations treaties that goes back to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, um, where all space actors came together and agreed on certain rules of behaviour that they were bound to. But what has changed in recent years is that, you know, those rules were kind of agreed by national actors, so by government actors, when space was, you know, mainly a place that governments went to. And now we are, again, dealing with some of the instability and um, uncertainty around what happens when you have commercial actors into space. And so that's kind of being figured out. And I would say that there's bad faith actors, particularly in the U.S., 
who are actively trying to undermine those UN treaties and argue that they do not hold any sway over commercial actors, whereas Stephen and, and many other space lawyers and space diplomats would say that's absolutely, that is a really strange way to interpret these treaties for your own benefit. You know, and with the satellites, there's an international organisation called the ITU that does regulate and manage which slots in the orbits are assigned to different operators and also the radio frequency use of those satellites. But the actual licensing of the satellites comes back down to each national government. So in the case of SpaceX, it's the US FCC, which is supposed to um, regulate these satellites, but is basically just pro-satellite business and doesn't actually think that satellites have any kind of impact on the environment. It goes back to an exemption that they created in 1986, when that was probably true, but now that the numbers have changed, it's not really holding anymore. What we need to do is hold our own national governments uh, accountable. So we need to keep a close eye on what, you know, the Australian government, how are they interpreting international space law into national law? Because it's at that juncture, it's the licensing of these things in the individual countries where either there's going to be regulation and there's going to be an acknowledgement of the impacts that these things might have on, on things like the environment and other kinds of value like dark skies or there won't be that accountability and yeah. these things will, will just happen. And it is kind of oh. crazy that, you know, the FCC can let this happen for the whole world. So those satellites that are going to impact all of us, you know, there's a, just a few commissioners on that committee yeah. and they get to decide it for, for all of us at the moment. We'll have to leave it there, Caridwin, because we've run out of time, but I'm so grateful to you and I hope people can read your essay, Everlasting Freefall, which is out in Best Australian Science Writing 2021, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for the lovely questions too. A pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.